Good morning, everybody. My name's Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. Hi, Bethany. Good to see everybody here. A couple new faces, a couple old faces. We are in part four of our sermon series called The Wonder and All This, and we are looking at four distinct relational dynamics that Jesus has with his followers. That of Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Teacher, Jesus as Lord, and what's the one I'm missing? Jesus as friend. And so today we're going to start a two-part mini-series within the larger series of Jesus or God as our friend. And um, it's hard sometimes to relate to God and to Christ in all of these things. If you think about uh, in high school or in college, you would have a teacher, and yet that teacher you would not relate to as a friend necessarily. There was a different relational dynamic that you had with your teacher than you had with your friends. There was a different way that you responded to one another, a different way that you interacted with one another, and yet Jesus comes to us as our ever-living friend, Savior, Teacher, and Lord, all of these things together. And so we're taking each one of these four titles, if you will, these four relational dynamics, and we're taking them apart and we're looking at different places in Scripture and considering what does it mean to be a friend of God? What does it mean to be a sinner Um, that needs a savior? What does it mean to be a servant of the Lord? What does it mean to be a a student, a disciple of Christ? And so today we are on friend of God. Uh, We just got done doing Jesus as savior, seeing uh, ourselves as in need of God's mercy and grace. But now we are moving into the idea of Jesus as friend. So my question I have for you, two minute question to talk to your neighbor about. Okay, so the four titles, savior, Friend, Lord, teacher, if you were to think of Jesus as friend or the the idea of friendship, what is a distinct characteristic of friends? What is like a distinct thing that defines a friend as compared to a teacher or as compared to a savior or as compared to a Lord? What is a distinct characteristic of being a friend that makes it the essence of friendship as compared to being a, a student or somebody that's in need or even a servant. So what is the essence of friendship? Go ahead and talk to your neighbor and just talk out loud about what you think the essence of friendship is. What kind of characteristic that distinguishes it from the others? This idea of God as our friend is kind of the one that messes with our ideas of God a little bit more. Because it's almost easier to think of God as a savior and as a lord and even as a teacher. But to think of it almost sounds audacious, right? A little bit arrogant or prideful. God's, God's my friend. I'm a friend of God. And yet we see that in, in scriptures in different places, although our definition of what that might mean might be uh, surprising. So what were some of the, the ideas? Sing, uh, a word or two or a short phrase. What defines, what is a characteristic of being a friend? You can say it out loud. Reliable, trust, acceptance. Intimate, what was over here? Friendly. I feel like you're making fun of me by saying that. Companionship. Honest. Empathy, loyal. Enjoying being with them. I'm sorry, what was? Goodness. Good listener. (laughs) I guess you and I were not friends. (laughs) Common interest? Did somebody say common interest? Cool. Good. 
It's more personal. It's a more personal than a, than a, a savior's uh, teacher or more professional. Hmm, interesting. Good. Uh, those aren't the ones I came up with. <laughs> of course not. So today's uh, message is going to be broken into two parts. I'm going to give a reflection out of the New Testament of one of these characteristics that I see. And then we're going to break, so to speak, bread together and have communion with one another. And then we're going to move into the second part where we will look at the Old Testament and specifically two uh, friends of God in the Old Testament to see what the scriptures might be saying is what does it mean to be a friend of God in that context. So let's first jump into the New Testament. Barry will actually be preaching on this text next week, but there are certain things that I really wanted to pull out because they're, they're so awesome and great. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn to John 15, John 15. This is where Jesus and the disciples, they are having a meal together. He is, uh, in this discourse, he is teaching a lot about all kinds of things, about who he is, who the Holy Spirit is. It's important to realize that at this point, what he's about to say in John 15 is only to 11 of the disciples. It's only to 11 of the disciples. Judas left. John 13, verse 30. Judas left at this point. That's important for, uh, Dwayne, can you go to the next slide on the Prezi? Judas left. So as he's speaking these things, he's speaking to the 11 disciples, not the 12 disciples. Judas left in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 30. He left the meal. He left the context of the narrative that we are in. Uh, chapter 15, verse 12, starting in verse 12. Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Keep that idea of friendship and some of the things that were said in your mind. Now flip backwards to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Couple verses starting in verse 47. The immediate context here is that Jesus is out praying with his inner circle, except his inner circle is falling asleep. It's right before his, uh, what we know would be the crucifixion. He's praying to the Father. He's speaking to these three disciples. Matthew 26, verse 47. While he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Or friend, why are you here? 
Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So in each of these passages, we have the, the, the translated word friend, and yet the context suggests kind of very different kinds of friendship. Right? We have the friendship that is in the John passage, and in the John passage, it's uh, talking about friendship in one way, and yet in the Matthew passage, it's kind of talking about friendship in another way, because usually friends don't betray you, hopefully. Hopefully friends don't uh, backstab you. And so each of these ideas of friends is there in the text, and yet they diverge and go on completely different paths. So what the grammar behind the English translation that you have here reveals is that there's two different words that are being used here. In the John passage, there's one Greek word being used. In the Matthew passage, there's a different Greek word being used. And both of these words carry the idea of companion. Did somebody say companion earlier? Yeah? Of companion, and what companion means literally is to be with somebody that you share bread with. If you are a companion, it's somebody that you are close enough to that you would share a meal with. And both of these words in the Greek have this idea of companionship, and yet they diverge pretty distinctly and pretty quickly, and they go down different paths. That this kind of friend is not the same as this kind of friend. In the John passage, Jesus uses the word philos. This is kind of more the, the, the idea of friendship that we would take, the kind of common idea of friendship, the good idea of friendship, that someone is loved, someone is dear to you. It carries the idea of kindness, and it carries the idea of kiss, not from the idea of betray, betraying, such as the Judas kiss, but in the idea of close companionship, that you're so close with somebody that you can share a kiss with them. It also has to do with the, the appropriation of yourself towards another's benefit. So when Jesus calls us his friends, he is referencing this fact that um, he loves us, that he is affectionate towards us. But if we look at this other place in Matthew, there's a different Greek word that is being used there, heteros. heteros. And now this word is a bit trickier because it also means companionship, but the idea of what the person is getting out of the companionship differs greatly as compared to somebody that is being selfless in the relationship and wants the benefit of the other person. It's almost the exact opposite. So the Greek dictionary says, says it like this. This form of friendship refers to comrade, comrades who were mostly followers of a chief. They were not necessarily companions for the sake of helping the chief, but for getting whatever advantage they could. Again, think about the Judas kiss. It is a person who attaches herself to another for what she can get out of the chief. It is a leech. It means a selfish acquaintance, one who seeks her own interests above the interests of others. This word is a partner in a company, not necessarily for the good of the others, but primarily for his own advantages. The good of others is acceptable only when it promotes his own well-being. So here, as we look at this word friend in the New Testament, there's at least two different ways. There's this one that's really about this affectionate self-giving of yourself for another that is referenced in the John. But then there's this other word that Jesus uses specifically towards um, Judas, that this friend word that is a companion. And yet the context behind that is kind of saying, the only reason that you're my friend is because you're trying to get something out of this. 
And honestly, one of the things that kind of hit me the most in thinking about friendship, not just with God, but how do I define friendship with my friends? How do I define my friendship with some of you here? Are we only friends if this is mutually beneficial? If this is working out, if I'm getting something from you, then you're my friend. Or are we friends on a different level, on a deeper level that Jesus is referencing in John 15? Am I being selfish in my friendship with Tim and that as soon as that uh, relationship doesn't provide any kind of benefit back to me, well, I'm kind of out of here. And then how do we translate those human relationships and those human dynamics of friendship into our relationship with God? One characteristic of being a friend, this is, th- these are my answers, is that a friend is compassionate. The word compassionate, if you break it down, means what? It means to suffer with. The word com- compassion means to suffer with. Jesus, as our fully human friend, came and suffered with us and all of the humanity's junk, yet he was without sin. And we, as friends of Jesus, then do what? We suffer with him. Right? There is no greater love than this to lay down your life for a friend. And if we think about the mutual exchange, Gene kind of hit on it about this. What was your word, Gene, that you said? Personal, that there's not necessarily this quote-unquote professional hierarchy almost, that the teacher is above the student with friends, you're kind of on the same level. Jesus comes to suffer with us, and we're probably more okay with that, like what a great God, what a great God that he comes and enters into my suffering. But then if we're friends of God and we're friends of Jesus, how do we feel about suffering with Jesus? And that's a different kind of question. And if I'm honest most days, like I don't know that I want that kind of suffering. I don't know that I want to enter into that place where, yeah, Jesus, take on my, empathize with me, sympathize with me. And yet when God's heart breaks, am I going to be a friend of God and enter into that kind of sorrow? When God's heart celebrates, am I going to be that kind of a friend and enter into uh, the celebration and the joy that God is experiencing? Friendship has to do with compassion. And yet thinking about being a friend with God Um, Who wants to invite more suffering? And so with that, I'm going to ask Beth to come up front here. Beth, uh, a couple weeks ago, sorry, months ago, we had a class upstairs where we talked about all this. It was actually the catalyst of this sermon series. And Beth wrote me a a nice lengthy email afterwards uh, expressing some of her tension of considering Jesus as friend. And as we go to the communion table and as we think of this idea of compassion, of suffering with, the idea that Jesus suffered with us and we suffer with him. Beth is going to lead us into a reflection about how difficult that is to think about, oh, hey, I can't wait for more suffering. I can't wait to take on this uh, relational dynamic and suffer even more than I do now. So let's uh, listen to Beth's reflection. Do you need a stand, Beth? Are you good? Do you need a stand? Like this stand. Everybody, this is Beth. Say hi to Beth if you don't know her. There you go. Thanks for sharing, Beth. 
a few months A few months ago, during an equipping class upstairs, I mentioned my unfamiliarity with Jesus as friend. Someone in the small group said, perhaps I associate a bit of fear of what that could mean to be a friend of Jesus. Reluctantly anticipating something it could be or perhaps may not be, I reflected on her words and remembered the hurdle I had after listening to a sermon years ago The message of the sermon was on God's love and power being inseparable. I eventually became trusting of my Heavenly Father, realizing the God of the universe with a word could create or tear down, but also connecting with him and his love in such an intimate way that I could safely trust him. I see the Trinity as a diamond that I could turn and look into and see another facet. The Father's power and love for me is astounding, and I've sensed the presence of the Holy Spirit after seeking and pursuing and learning over the many years. But the facet of Jesus has not been as easy to look at. I think I've kept a part of myself reserved from that continued pursuit of Jesus and of Jesus as friend. Friends walk together. What does that mean to walk with Jesus who gave his life for me, for us all? What does it mean to be a friend in his suffering, to share in his suffering, to partner in his suffering? I've been through a lot in my life, not as much as many others who've experienced a really hard, continual road with many heartbreaking circumstances, but I've had more heartache than some. A tragic loss of my brother my mother's stroke, my father-in-law going through dementia, their resulting deaths, almost losing my son in an accident, the emotional and physical weight of tragedy, the processing and rehabilitation for myself and other family members through all the trauma was so heavy. So I feel unable and hesitant to pursue Jesus as my friend as my flesh fights against the very surrender of all to the pursuit of walking with him. Jesus continually asked his followers to walk away from everything that was their life to follow him. Who asks for more pain? Who wants more pain? As I said before, friends walk together. So what does that mean then if I am to share in Christ's sufferings? I prayed years ago to learn more of Jesus. Subconsciously, though, I've held the pursuit of Jesus as my friend at arm's length. Surely I know that I am unable in my own strength to even be able to enter in, and I do not feel condemned because I remember Jesus in the garden asking for another way. But I also remember what Jesus told his father, thy will be done. Sometimes I can imagine being in those days when Jesus walked this earth, the love and power that exuded from him, why some people were so attracted to him and others hated him. I can imagine the unreligiousness of him and the example he was to the disciples. I can learn from him as teacher, he being the example of all the spiritual gifts and fruits and the one who contained the fullness of the divine glory. 
I can imagine and believe there was power in his divine love to heal and restore. There was power in forgiveness, in his forgiveness, and love to tear the curtain and overcome the power of death, Satan and the grave providing the salvation of humankind. But I confess, I'm not sure I'm ready to walk into the garden with him or to the Mount of Crucifixion. That, to me, is being his friend. And there is a fear present about what it means to be in the fellowship of his sufferings. In the Gospel of Luke, in the part leading up to Christ's death, it says, the temple guards seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter followed at a distance. I pray that we step closer to Jesus our Savior and friend, and not follow at a distance. Jesus, help us to walk with you. Thank you, Beth. As we head to the communion table today, um, the communion table will be over here. The Niesels will be over here to serve communion. We're also going to have the Goshertz in this back corner. If you need prayer for anything during communion, please feel free to see Jim or Cindy. However, I would also ask you to consider receiving prayer based out of uh, Beth's reflection. Um, You know, what is something that you could confess? What is something right now that is making you follow Jesus at a distance? Is there a fear? Is there um, something that you need to let go of? that you're okay following Jesus how you are now, but he's kind of up there, kind of a little bit of ways. You're not walking right next to him. And this is, you know, a place of grace and mercy for all of us because none of us are fully emerged in the, uh, the spirit of Christian life. And we confess that. And we confess that we need the brokenness of Christ to continue to refine and to redeem our minds and our hearts and to teach us a better way of truth to speak words over us that aren't just about the words that we hear out in culture or on the news or from uh, other people, but the very word of God spoken to us. So what is something that is making you follow Jesus at a distance rather than walking right next to him in your life right now? Feel free to receive prayer for that. And as we go into song, uh, I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 3. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surrounding and surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So may we, as we go to the table, be reminded of the friendship of Jesus and specifically of compassion, of his compassion to us, of him entering into our suffering, of suffering with us. And let that also be a reflection point to us then in responding in compassion towards Jesus and entering into his suffering. What does that even mean? What does it mean to suffer with Christ? The communion table is open here at Cornerstone. We take the bread, we tear it from the loaf, and we dip it, and we remember the new covenant. We remember the body of Jesus broken. We remember his blood and his love and the truth that is Jesus Christ crucified. Reminder, prayer is available in the back corner with the Goshers. Take out your Bibles again. So first, first characteristic was... Compassion, to suffer with, to suffer with. Second one, let's consider what it means for Jesus to call us friends. What does it mean for us to be friends of God? In two stories of two men in the Old Testament, Abraham and Moses. These stories make me uncomfortable because they mess with my theology. I hate when scripture does that. When you have you kind of thinking one thing and then like scripture kind of gives some nuance or complexity or something to it. So... Stay in it if this plays with your theology at all, um, but try to listen to the text and especially try to re- listen to the relational dynamic of how Abraham and God are interacting, and how Moses and God are interacting. So um, especially as we look at this, it's really important because right now Cornerstone is at a place probably the past year where we've seriously been considering more and more what does it mean to be intercessors? What does it mean to be people of prayer and not just make that something that is uh, very limited and boxed in like this, but what does it mean to really search the heart of God and the spirit and the scriptures uh, as far as God moving us into deeper places of intercession for one another, for families, for our city, and even for our region. So this is really uh, timely for, for Cornerstone also. If you want to take your Bibles to follow along, I'm going to read two chapters in uh, the Old Testament, that start with Genesis 18. Genesis 18. Now, Abraham, three times in the scriptures, is called a friend of God. He's called it uh, uh, in First Chronicles, I want to say, in the prophet Isaiah, and then also in the book of James. He is called a friend of God, Abraham is. Now, interestingly enough, in any of his narratives, he's not called a friend of God. So it's not like at any certain point God is saying, hey, you're my friend. So we can't necessarily go to a specific verse in his story in Genesis. We're like, oh, this is where it is. Traditionally, however, Genesis 18 has been a place where uh, people that study the scriptures and scholars and pastors have gone to to see what it means to be a friend of God or to at least get an idea of what it means to be a friend of God. So let's listen to the story, thinking about the relational dynamic between Abraham and Genesis. I will also use the word Yahweh for the name of the Lord where appropriate. Yahweh is, if in your Bibles it's Lord capitalized, um, that's the proper name of God. 
And Yahweh appeared to him, Abraham, at the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men, you should read that, three embodied beings, were standing in front of him. Then he saw them. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they, the three embodied beings, said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, seven quarts of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So a couple notes. When he goes down and bows, this is just part of ancient Near Eastern uh, hospitality. So he's just going down to bowing because it's hospitable to do that. However, there's also a special reference to bowing here because of the fact that this is the Lord in some fashion. There are three embodied beings. They are embodied. They are eating. They are getting their feet washed. They are sitting down. Kind of plays with what you think about God sometimes. What we do know is that one of these is the embodied Yahweh. And two of them are angels. If you look at the next chapter, chapter 19, after they separate, it says two of them went down, and then the text labels them as angels. So one of them is Yahweh embodied, however that is, and two others are some other kind of divine beings, not Yahweh, lower class angel, not the God of all gods, the God above all things. Abraham is being very hospitable and and very generous. Do you see what he does there where he offers something and then he goes beyond and above what he is actually offering? So he says, let me just do these little things for you. And then he goes and he runs. And he's an old dude. He's like 85 at this point. And he's getting all of this food ready, running to the young man to get the calf ready to prepare this meal for these three visitors. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah. Her menstrual cycle had dried up. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord, Abraham, is old, shall I have pleasure? Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And then listen to this phrase right now. This is the best phrase in all of this message today. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And one of the awesome things about this is that that word uh, hard, depending on what you have or difficult, what you have in your text is pala. And it also means wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And a lot of times we want to take the wondrous things in our lives of interacting with the Lord and divorce them from any kind of difficulty. And I love the way the Hebrew text and language plays with that word. That is there anything too difficult for the Lord to do? Is there anything too wonderful for Yahweh? And oftentimes we want to run to ease and to comfort 
and yet there's something wondrous and glorious and beautiful about engaging in the difficult parts of our faith. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. She's like, I didn't, I didn't say that inside my head. I didn't, I didn't laugh to myself. I did not laugh, for she was afraid. God said, he said, Yahweh said, no, but you did laugh. So he's kind of exercising his divinity here where, like, Sarah laughed to herself and said something in her mind, like, oh, my, 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 my. Uh, I didn't say that. No, you did. That's kind, of a, that's kind of a side thing. But then the men set out from there, the embodied beings, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And Yahweh said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen, or yada, which also means known, I have known him, I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. Then Yahweh said, because the outcry, the uh, insinuation is Yahweh said this to Abraham. Uh, And Yahweh said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to them. And if not, I will know. So we have this idea of companionship. Again, what does companionship mean? Yes, to share a meal. Thank you, one person listening companionship, to share a meal together in this text, this idea that they shared a meal together. And now God, Yahweh is like, I have these plans. I'm not going to hide them from Abraham. I'm going to share because I know I've chosen him and I know him. And now what happens after we kind of establish some of those key tenets of a friendship, of this relationship? Intercession happens. Bargaining happens. So the men turned from there and went down toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before Yahweh. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not, and not spare it for the 50 righteous who were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He's insinuating there that, God, you're not doing what is just. And the Lord, Yahweh, said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham doesn't stop there. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am just dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And Yahweh said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, Abraham spoke to God and said, suppose 40 are found there. God answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, oh, let not the Lord be angry at me. He's pushing his luck, right? And I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. God answered, I will not do it. If I find 30 there, he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answers, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. God answered, for the sake of 10, 
I will not destroy it. And Yahweh went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Turn over to Exodus chapter 33. God has rescued the people of Israel out of out of slavery from Egypt. And in order to commemorate that, what do they do? They go ahead and make some golden calves and worship those things instead of God. And God is um, upset and frustrated by that. And, and so is Moses. So that's where we're picking up. Uh, Exodus chapter 33. Now consider again, think about the relational dynamic. There's so many theological things in both of these texts. That's crazy. Think about the relational dynamic between Abraham and God and now Moses and God. Yahweh said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So he's saying here, I have promised these things to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am going to keep with my promise. I'm going to send an angel that will protect you, and you can go on your way, but I am not going with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you. You're, going, you're not listening. You're uh, committing injustice towards yourselves, towards your neighbors, and towards, and towards me as your God. That I am not going to go with you. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, which were some of the ornaments they used to melt down to make the golden calf. For, the, for Yahweh had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment, I should go up among you. I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves and their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Next part. Now Moses used to take a tent and set it up outside of the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought Yahweh would go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went up, to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and Yahweh would speak with Moses. Again, that pillar was a representation of God's presence. So when you see a pillar of cloud, what is that? If you're not familiar with the story, it was the presence of God coming to meet with Moses. And when the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a younger man, would not depart from the tent. So here at this special place, this tent of meeting, Yahweh and Moses are meeting face to face the way that friends meet. Now, face-to-face is a Hebrew idiom because in a couple verses, you're going to say, see where God says, you cannot see my face or else you will die. What this is saying when it says face-to-face in another 
a section of the scripture, it says mouth to mouth, is that you and I have this open and honest and vulnerable relationship with one another. So face to face, don't think of like God's face and then don't think of, and then don't think of uh, Moses' face like looking at each other. It's this open and honest relationship with one another where there's vulnerability and we're speaking our minds to one another. Verse 12, Moses said to Yahweh, so here he's back talking. Moses said to Yahweh, see you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, which you have said, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And, and, and God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses says, please show me your glory. So here, in both of these passages, in both Abraham and in both Moses, we have this setting up of this relational dynamic where God and Moses and Abraham know one another. And even in the Moses story, it talks very distinctly about Moses knowing God as a friend. And then in both places, what happens afterwards, after that characteristic is established? There's this place of intercession. There's this place of prayer. There's this place of almost back-talking and negotiating with God in, in, this, in this section. Right? We have Abraham that's like, sees that you're going to go, God is going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And over and over, like it's almost annoying. How many times he goes to God and says, how about you lessen it like this? How about you lessen it like this? How about you lessen it like this? Moses is just straight back talking, saying like, you said you were going to do this. It's almost like Moses is holding God accountable. That's weird. You said this. Now this isn't happening. Don't forget what you said. You said you're going to go. Then you said you're not going to go because of what we've done. Okay, maybe that's a covenant stipulation. But I'm not okay with that. You need to change the circumstance because we're not going to go. We don't want just your angel to go up with us and protect us. We want your presence to, I want your presence to be with us along the way. And so there's this intercession that's happening and God listens. And God adjusts and considers the request sincerely. So I would say another characteristic of being a friend, especially being a friend of God, is that friends have influence. First characteristic, compassion to suffer with. Second characteristic, influence. Friends influence one another. And I would guess that we're more comfortable with God influencing us than us influencing God. There's good reason to think that. But that influence uh, technically means a flow into or a flow from. And so with friends, influence is about this flow of life between one another. And we see this so distinctly with Abraham and Moses. And what else do we see with this influence? We see them uh, wrestling with this tension of God as friend and God as Lord. 
you know, Moses is, is uh, kind of like pushing his luck, but he's also like, God, show me your glory. I know you are above and beyond all of this and what I can consider of you. And yet I'm going to kind of have this open and honest debate, conflict with you. But I also know that you're God. You're my friend, but you're God. Abraham, we see it even a little bit more distinctly where he uses this language over and over again. Like, I know you're the judge of the earth. I know I'm just dust. I know that I'm just ashes, but. And so this tension that we feel being friends of God, we kind of see this in the scripture. To be a friend of God that is open and honest in vulnerability. And yet also this is God. Right? It was the friendship characteristic with Abraham and Moses that allowed them to speak that way to God. And there's a third characteristic. So there's compassion and that there's influence. And there's a third characteristic that Barry will talk about next week that's important to it. And we can read this and be like, well, the text is doing this and it's using anthropomorphic language about this. And it's not really saying this or that. Because it kind of screws, at least it screws with my mind as far as God's sovereignty and God changing. I'm using air quotes there. But the fact of the matter is, is that this exchange still happened. So whatever else is going on in the text, theologically, from a practical relational level with God, Moses and Abraham are still having these kind of conversations with God as a friend, which is giving us Uh, credence and is giving us a pathway to also have those conversations with God. To also think about what does it mean to influence God? Doesn't that sound so pompous? What do the scriptures say and how can we rightly interpret them in this place? What does it mean to be influenced by God? We kind of get that. But what does it mean in intercession and in prayer and in wrestling with God to have these kind of conversations uh, with God? the Almighty One. And so influence, as I said before, is literally the flow of one life into another and vice versa. The friendship of God is a flow both ways, whereas the servant master or the student teacher or the sinner savior, we think of the flow of life kind of going more one way towards the greater. But in the friendship of God, there's this flow back and forth between here. Uh, Worship team, you can come up. So this relationship with God is both difficult and wonderful. As we think about that text, that we, we don't want to, uh, it's like we don't want to put God on our level, true. And yet what happens when God comes to our level? What happens when God enters into our suffering and into our plight and into these places? And it's a difficult thing to kind of justify the Lord of universe that created all the DNA strands and cells in your body and in every, everybody on earth's body. And that has created the cosmos that are unthinkable, that created the ocean. My family went to the beach uh, this past weekend. The ocean is no joke. Like you can look at pictures of the ocean and stuff. You're like, oh, that's pretty. But dude, when you're standing there and you feel the power of that, you can't, there's no compromising with the ocean. It is going to do what it's going to do. It is going to flow how it is going to flow. And it is beautiful and it is powerful and it's kind of scary and it's dangerous. And God is those things. And God is this friend that as we go deeper and deeper in a relationship with him, that we can have this kind of like, uh, 
don't take this the wrong way, but eh, you're kind of off base here. Or show me, show, me, show me where I'm off base. It seems like you're off base, God. It seems like you're not holding up to your end of the deal. It seems like you're not um, exhibiting the characteristics of who you revealed yourself to be. Show me more and more of your glory. And this even makes me think, again, how am I taking my friendships? Are my friendships in life just about um, um, acceptance to the level of not having conflict? Are your friendships like that? What if by definition a friendship has to have conflict? Has to have some kind of butting of heads, has to have some kind of flow where we're not just always affirming one another, but in the deep recesses of what friendship is actually supposed to be, that I am so for you, Matt, that I'm going to kind of call you out on this. And that Matt is so for me that he's going to kind of call me out on this. Or, hey, let's talk about this. Or do I and my friendships just want to go ahead and have friends, as long as we get along, then we're good. And nobody wants a relationship or a friendship where every single minute you're like meddling in each other's lives and nitpicking. Does anybody want that? I hope not. And yet what about our cultural definition of friend? Am I actually being a good friend to, to people by uh, avoiding conflict? Or is God actually calling me to exhibit a friendship between my fellow brother or sister by actually having conflict, actually sitting down and wrestling with this together and not bailing on each other? So compassion and influence, two characteristics of, of what I believe it means to be a friend of God. Next week, Barry will bring the third characteristic based out of John 15, that other passage. But right now, we are going to uh, end in worship kind of with practicing this. Um, we're going to do the song that's based out of Psalm 10 called Never Again. And it's a psalm that kind of says, God, what are you doing? It seems like you're not doing anything. Like, it says, wake up, God. You need to move because all of this evil is happening. And so I would invite you, through the blood of Christ and the mercy of Jesus, to engage God on a friend level right now by thinking about how jacked up our world is, how jacked up maybe your circle of life is, city, whatever, and bringing that pain and that sorrow and that suffering into yourself and then giving it to God and asking God to move and asking God to be God and to know that you're not doing anything wrong but that there's grace there because God has invited you to be his friend and through the blood of Jesus as our savior we can enter cowardly we can enter uh tiptoe what was the word oh boldly right we can enter boldly again he's still God but let's butt heads. Let's wrestle. God, show me, show us your glory. Let's stand as we sing and worship.